0: Today's episode is about investing in microcap companies. My guest is Carlos Gill, the CEO of Microequities Asset Management. Carlos has been investing in microcap businesses for decades and is the chief investment officer for his company's funds. His flagship Deep Value Fund has compounded its growth over 19% per annum since its inception in March 2009. In this interview, Carlos shares with us his investment philosophy and journey. He also explains the factors he considers to be most important when analyzing a small-cap business and its management. If you're looking to add micro-cap multi-baggers to your portfolio, the insights Carlos shares are priceless. Enjoy the episode. Hey, I'm Andrew, and this is the Medical Money Podcast, where we talk about personal finance, investing, and other random topics to make you a happier human. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review and share the episode with someone you care about. You can connect with me via my blog, medicalmoney.com. And just remember that the content of this podcast is general in nature and not personal financial advice. Podcast guests are sharing their own opinions and may hold positions in companies discussed. Please, seek professional advice before making any financial decision and always read the product disclosure statements. Good morning, Carlos. Thanks for joining me today. How are you traveling?
1: I'm very well, Andrew. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm very excited to have a chat today because the microcap space is, you know, has in the last twelve months, at least since the retracement, been been quite uh, an exciting space to watch, and we've seen some crazy things happen. I um, mean, I suppose every investor would love to find and catch just one 10 or hundred bagger in their lifetime, and many of us are kicking ourselves for not jumping on board something like afterpay. You know, we had the chance ages ago, but also in the last twelve months where it's just gone absolutely crazy and making everyone a bit FOMO uh, to find the next one in their own uh, portfolio. Um, many listeners um, already do have a bit of exposure to microcaps and small caps, and others are looking at getting exposure to their portfolios because of the significant upside potential, but I think today's episode I'd really like to also highlight the risks attached to it and also the amount of work that's required for for people to do as retail investors. Um, so today I'm really excited to get your insights and learn from your experience investing in this space. Um, I mean this prof- in these professional asset allocator conversations, i like to focus on the four Ps to understand the person, their psychology, their process, and the portfolio management strategies that that allow you to kind of get the results that you do. And so my hope is that after listening to this episode, that listeners will feel a bit more confident in um, understanding how to analyze microcaps and then decide um, how they do gain exposure to it, whether it's um, through their own work or, or through a fund. So to kick us off, can you please share with us how you got started in investing and how you ended up Looking at the microcap cap space, yeah.
1: yeah sure, so so look my my interest in in investment goes back to to my high school years. Um, I think I was a pretty ordinary student till probably about year eight or year nine when i was introduced to the whole world of economics through a subject called commerce at at high school and um i quickly found out i had a natural talent and and an ability to understand the key concepts behind economics commerce and and capitalism and that sort of took me on a journey of of really understanding investment and and equities and and so um, by the time I was 16 I was already pretty proficient at, at economics um, and I had a huge appetite for for knowledge um, and and I was studying equities and and how they functioned I still didn't know a lot and and, and I still had a long journey of of, um, of learning um, but but um, I decided to invest what was then my life savings I think I had about two thousand dollars that I had saved through um, a paper run I used to do at Bondi Beach and I worked at McDonald's. So that was my life savings, and my first foray was in a was in a little private um, hospital chain of hospitals that was listed a little microcap in in the ASX. I think it was called Alpha Alpha Healthcare, I think it was. Uh, I think they had about fifteen or sixteen private hospitals, um, and that was my first foray. And and the reason why I became really interested in, in equities is because I wanted to compound um, my wealth. Um, I didn't have a lot of wealth back then, um, but but I sort of went to study empirical historical returns amongst all other uh, amongst all types of asset classes property bonds corporate bonds government bonds equities all types of, of assets and you when you do that when you do that exercise you quickly come to the conclusion that that equities presents the the highest and most compelling long term investment return and you know i i was 16 um, Hopefully, going to lead a long life, and, and you know I was interested in long-term returns, not not short-term returns, and so decided to to, to invest in equities um, ahead of all other asset classes. And then, um, as I got more proficient, I asked myself, "Well, they, 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 you know equities is kind of very generic. There are these sort of sub." asset classes within equities. Um, there's large companies and mid-sized companies, they're small and micro. And then I did more empirical research in terms of the long-term investment returns and quickly also concluded that, geez, equities is the best returning asset class, but within equities, small caps and micro caps are outstandingly better. Um, and, you know, the, the, the reason for that Investment return differential is is really quite simple. Um, the reality is small and micro cap companies generally tend to outgrow or, or grow at a faster rate um, than large companies and, and mid sized companies. So so that's really how I got onto this lifelong passion and journey of, of equity investing and specifically small cap and, and micro cap investing. And I've been um, I've been a proponent of, of Australian small caps and micro caps. And I've you know I've got huge amounts of my personal wealth co-invested alongside our, our clients in, in the asset class. Were your parents investors? Uh, were you exposed to investing as a, during your childhood? No, not at all. Um, no, my, my parents come from a working class family um, and, and none of them were investors. I was kind of the anomaly. My, my brother's an international chess master um, and I was the kind of the only one in the family that was really interested in, in, in economics and investing. Mm.
0: But you really started quite quite early when most of us were kind of chasing soccer balls and footballs and girls. <laughs> You'd already started to get into to learning this the game.
1: It was fascinating, and still to to this day, I haven't lost my fascination with it. I mean, the the thing about outside of health, which is. The most important thing for any any individual, any human being, um, money is usually secondary uh, after health. And and the thing about economics and capitalism is that it affects uh, everybody's lives. It it you know it ordains how you know, society functions, how it's organised, um, it impacts everybody. Um, and outside of health probably has the second most meaningful impact in terms of, of a person or an individual's uh, quality of life. So, um, it, is, it is a pretty important uh, component of, of society and, and also an individual.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think uh, it's money doesn't fix all your problems, but it definitely fixes all your money problems and gives you that optionality. Yeah, um, and how did um, Alpha Healthcare uh, play out with your first investment?
1: Uh, well, similarly, actually, to to a lot of the companies that we 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 own in our funds, uh, it actually ended up being bought out by, I can't remember now, it became subject to a takeover um, and it became private. So, um, that tends to happen to a lot of our companies actually. But, yeah, I did okay. I did pretty well out of the, the investment. It was a profitable business. It was paying dividends and, and um, you know, under my then pretty unsophisticated um, analysis, it looked undervalued.
0: Mm. And so, from university, you then went on to work in sort of research houses and investment banks.
1: Yeah I I I did uh started in Australia but then I went on holidays to Europe and and I had some family in Spain and uh, ended up staying there for almost 10 years and ended up working for one of the the main huge banks in Spain and I was head of of international equities there um got homesick I was investing in 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 Australian small cap and micro caps at the time and and just said oh, I don't really want to work for anybody else anymore I want to um, I want to start my own business, and and that was sort of the genesis for for returning home and 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 starting microequity. So I did that in in two thousand and five.
0: Two thousand and five. So initially, so you've got microequities asset management now, but my understanding is initially you were kind of more of a research focused um
1: a business. Yeah, the background to that. Whilst I was in Spain, um, and and I was investing. I continue to invest in in Australian small cap and, and micro caps. I, I was having a lot of difficulty accessing professional investment research on some of the companies that that looked really interesting, and I saw that you know the majority of the investment banks and, and stockbrokers uh, focus all the sell side research on really pretty much mid cap to large cap companies. There's a, there's somewhat. A little bit of coverage in in the small and micro cap space, but it's very scattered, and you know you're lucky if you've got two brokers covering a specific company. Whereas you know a large company like the ANZ banks probably got 15 um, different entities covering the covering the bank. Um, so I wanted to um, really research companies that I was interested in, and I thought, well, I'll start Microequities first as an investment research house because I. I need to do some very serious research on on companies that I'm I'm now investing larger and larger amounts of, of money into. Uh, this is back in two thousand and five. Um, but the idea was always to evolve that into a funds management business once we had a sufficient body of, of of high quality research and and really profoundly knew the the investment universe we were looking to continue to to invest in. And and so that was the idea: um, so start out in research, but then we'll evolve. That into funds management, and we did that in 2008. Mm, so that 2008
0: would have been a fun time to to load up on uh, investor money and also uh, get into the market when everyone was probably you know running scared. How how did that? What was it like back then? And and how did you manage to actually set things up, given that it was probably ultimate uh, investor fear
1: at that point in time? Well, I, I thought it was a wonderful time to be deploying capital. Um, unfortunately, when you, a professional. Um, fund manager thinks that um, usually sentiment is through the floor, um, and so um, investors are much more hesitant because they see gloom, not opportunity. So um, it was very difficult to raise capital. Um, we knocked on a lot of doors, and people said, uh, "Carlos, really like what you've done. I like your track record, but um, you know, give us a call in six or twelve months' time." So we did. We did manage to raise some capital from from friends and and a few true believers, and and um, we launched. In March 2009, um, and it was very tough commercially to raise capital, but but it was a wonderful time to be actually deploying capital. Um, so, look, it was interesting. You know, we were born in the GFC. Um, next year, uh, 2010, we had the uh, European sovereign debt crisis. Um, so we were. I like to say we're born in the GFC. We grew. We grew up during the sovereign. Uh, the European sovereign debt crisis, um, and by the time um, the COVID uh, crisis came about, we were um, absolute veterans. Um, and the the thing with with equity markets is that um, you should always expect another crisis event. We our assumption is there's a crisis event uh, always going to happen around the corner. You just don't know when. But 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 if you look at history, there's usually one market event uh, that impacts to a very significant degree on average, you know, every six to 10 years. Um, and it's just a repeating sequence. Um, what you don't know is the nature and and where it comes from, or where it originates from, but but there will always be these sort of market events. And you have to be prepared to, first of all, understand the, the context and also see the opportunity because they are events that dislocate um, market pricing. And those that Market pricing dislocation um, can really provide a professional investor with tremendous investment opportunity. Well, not just professional investors, all investors. Mm. So I suppose investing at in
0: that time, you got a good, uh, you know, tailwind head start in that first couple of years. Because looking at your um, your flagship fund that you started then, your compounded return has been about eighteen plus percent, hasn't it, since uh, two
1: thousand and nine? Yeah. Look, we, we we the the absolute return was was good in two thousand and nine, but if you actually look at our, our historical returns, you'll actually see that. The really strong outperformance actually comes after the GFC, comes after two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. From about two thousand and eleven onwards, we actually start to really beat the indexes, like really by some margin. Um, and what we typically find is um, we actually do better. We do we when when the market is rising, we do a little bit better than than the index. Um, when the market is falling, we do a lot better. Um, so it's quite a curious, um, it's a, quite a curious performance stream. If you actually look at, at falling markets, that's when we actually generate the the biggest the biggest um, um, gaps of of outperformance.
0: Okay, sure. Maybe we'll touch on that in your your portfolio management process later on. Then, um, all right. Let's move across to your investment philosophy. Let's start at the beginning. What are microcaps?
1: Yeah, sure. So, great question, Andrew, because it's a somewhat confusing term for a lot of investors. And and let's be clear, it's it's not a you know you can't look at the Oxford Dictionary and and you'll actually get that definition because everyone's got a subjective definition. But we define a mar- uh, a microcap as a, a company that has a market value or market capitalization under three hundred million dollars. Yep. and so where do you draw the line of
0: small caps? And do you use that same your know, 300 when looking at international companies as well?
1: Uh, pretty Australia? much, I think we I think for the global fund, I think we put it at 350 million US dollars. So we we expanded it a little bit um, in terms of small caps. Our definition is under two billion. If you if if you work in Europe, though, that you know they tend typically define anything under five or sometimes even 10 billion dollars as a small cap company. They they work with much larger scale. Uh, companies, but but in, in in our definition and in our Australian context, um, we look at a small cap as a company that has a, a market value under under two billion. Yep. Yeah. You said you as a, you know, teenager, you started
0: looking at where the the greatest upside potential was, and so of all the possible investments in the world, why have you chosen this area in the micro cap space to be your circle of competence?
1: Well, two, two things. One is obviously that the 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 historical empirical historical returns are there for a reason and um, it's a reliable, you know, that you, you always have the disclaimer past returns are, are not indicative of future returns. Um, I don't think that's somewhat applicable to, to the asset class. I think there is a real reason why historically small cap and micro cap companies do better than large cap companies and that um, that assumption I think is valid and will be valid going forward for for the foreseeable future and the reason for that is is really if you associate the market value of a company or the intrinsic value of a company um, and it's intimately linked to the size and scale of a company being the revenue the profit and the cash flow smaller companies gr- outgrow or grow faster at faster rates for longer periods of time than large companies, which means that assets in that held for long periods of time in that asset class will revaluate at faster or greater levels over the long term. And, and that's the first and, and, and strongest reasons why I invest so heavily in this asset class. The second, the second element is I happen to be a value Investor, um, which means I like to buy things for a price um, that reflects that the underlying asset is worth a lot more than what I'm paying for. So I like to buy things at a heavy discount to what I think the asset is worth, or um, well, not just assets. When I go to Woolworths, I usually buy, you know, 40 or 50% of my shopping basket is stuff that's on discount because um, I just like to get things cheaper. Um, and so the same principle applies when I'm buying companies. I like to buy companies when they're on sale. Um, And so the beauty about our asset class is there is a – a phenomenon called market inefficiency, which, you know, for the benefit of your readers, it essentially means that value does not equal market price at any point in time and a company can be worth, the market value can be much higher than its true underlying uh, worth and it can be m- much lower. And so we, um, we do a lot of research to identify a growth business whose underlying value um, is – a lot higher than the market price. And the beauty about our asset class is this phenomenon called market inefficient is actually um, very powerful, uh, very powerful and in great existence in in our asset class. Uh, And that's related to what I came back to earlier when we set up microequities, there was this lack of of professional investment research. It's still today a very underinvested asset class from an institutional perspective, which essentially means that these professional – um, the, the set of professionals being fund managers and analysts that interact in the market and act as agents of price discovery are nowhere near as prevalent in our asset class which means you get these large gaps of market efficiency and you get um, these businesses priced um, in a very distorted way and that for us represents an outstanding opportunity. Mm. The microcaps Companies because they are smaller companies, they tend to be more
0: pure play on a certain um technology or product line, don't they because they're not you know massively diversified because they can't be running in multiple directions at one time
1: uh, look i think I think you've seen you know you've seen a a trend towards product specialisation across all companies, all corporates. You know, I remember, you know, when I was a teenager in the 1980s, the, there was this fashion of of these large conglomerate holding companies that really had all these divisions that really had no sort of industrial synergies between them and it didn't really make any sense. Um, you know, fund managers um, like to get, you know, whether they're buying large caps, mid caps or, or, or small caps, like um, a a – I'd like to buy a business where there is industrial synergy and and a concentration or expertise around uh, a particular product service vertical. I think that is a valid observation across um, across all corporates, not just um, not just the small caps, and I think that's been a trend um, since the explosion of a lot of those holding companies that were heavily leveraged and and really didn't have an industrial sense to to buying all these differentiated assets.
0: How do you find the micro-cap space um, moves with the macroeconomic conditions? You mentioned that sort of in, you know, falling markets, you actually can outperform.
1: Well, one of, the, one of the attributes that we also like about this asset class is that, you know, the thesis that we develop on a, on a particular company a lot of the time um, has, is really not predicated on the prevailing macroeconomic um, cycle. Um, I, it's a thesis that we've identified for example a business that has a superior product or service technology um, that product might be in the earliest stages of, of its product life cycle it might be gaining market share of its competitors it might be in an industry where for societal thematic reasons it's 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 growing rapidly and so those drivers those those engines for growth are not really macro dependent whereas if you're Woolworths or you're the ANZ Bank, um, I think if I'm the CEO of those companies, I do care about Australia's unemployment rate. I do care about interest rates. I do care about population growth. There's a whole set of, of macro uh, factors that do influence and will influence my my P&L outcomes, um, whereas for, for small companies, micro companies, um, Generally, the genesis or the drivers for for their for the investment and outcomes are are company centric factors and drivers
0: mm, okay and what are some of the misunderstood features of micro caps? Are they just gambling or throwing darts at a board like a lot of you know not people who are not invested in this space you know would 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 say
1: yeah so so the asset class tends to be associated with a, a high risk um, speculative asset class. Um, a lot of people uh, would be surprised to know that some micro cap companies have been around for 10, 20 years. A lot of people might be surprised to know that about a third of the asset class is actually um, quite profitable. Um, so, a lot of people think that a micro cap is a, a startup or a very young company. Um, a lot of the companies by the micro cap companies that That actually IPO already have five, sometimes ten years worth of of track record. So they're not they're not new companies. They're they're just younger companies. Um, So um, there are uh, there's a huge diversity of, of, of companies, and there's a whole spectrum of of you know at the one end, highly speculative and at the other end high quality um, investment grade and highly backable businesses so there's a huge array of disparity within the asset class and really to to make a a you know general a generalised observation around its risk is really quite an inf- inf- uninformed um, uh, view because it's it's such a complex um, universe and with with a very diverse range of of, of fundamental risks.
0: Mm. Mm. And so, so what's some of the industries that have your interest right now? The industries with you know stronger tailwinds.
1: Look, we, we, we're not. You know, we we, we don't focus on a, yeah. on a we we don't focus on a particular industry per se. It's kind of we it's kind of a function of the bottom up process that we do. What we've always favoured, um, you know, and you know, the same, you know, twenty years ago we would have still favoured it. Is really finding a high quality business, um, and a high quality business tends to have certain characteristics, um, and and those characteristics are it's got. Its products and services provide a real value proposition to the end clients. They're, they're valuable um, to the client and they serve a true purpose um, and, and provide and meet a really good need uh, for, for the end client. They're usually difficult to to substitute, um, so there's a real moat uh, around the, the company. Um, they usually have high-quality products um, um business models that engender high operational margins, generate free cash flow. Typically a very good business for us would have will generate free cash flow that allows the company to fund its expansion plants internally sourced from that cash flow. So the company itself is actually not dependent on capital markets for funding to, to grow. Um, so so you know, as a consequence of of looking for these types of of features, we tend to be very invested in in software technology, particularly enterprise software not not software that not not software that's consumer facing, but but B two B software and business to business. Um, and and typically, that software is integral to to or mission critical for the business, and it's usually very difficult to replace. So it becomes ingrained in the in the operations it it does a it feels a a purpose that is integral to the company and and therefore the company needs it if they want to operate and keep the lights on and that that to us is a very backable and, and, and defendable um, need. And and so a lot of our funds, probably about forty to fifty percent of our assets, are held in, in software companies. We've also invested in in health. Um, we like health. We've invested, for example, uh, it's a business. We invested, for example, in in a in a vet business um, called National Vet Care. Um, when it ipo'd and, and and we invested there for four and a half years i think it wasn't until it got bought out by private equity um so sell health we, we like because it's got um it's got a defensive nature and 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 you know it's it's not discretionary uh we like um, invest in 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 services where there's an emotional element to the purchasing decision. Um, so so anywhere where we think, you know, for example, in in education, um, we we own education technology companies where we think that that the, the end consumer. Um, doesn't have as much price sensitivity, and there is an emotional element tied to to the purchasing decision. We like that, um, so so we invest in a, in a, quite a wide array. When we've invested as well in retail, we we, we don't have anything against retail, um, but but we like to to do a lot of research on the companies we 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 look at, and and we're, we're seeking to identify what its its competitive position, how defensible that is, uh, who can attack it and 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 what would what are the fundamental risks that this business what a particular business is exposed to hmm.
0: so it's really much more of a bottom up approach to specific to uh, the microeconomics of that business itself and not worrying so much about the the, the global picture
1: correct so- sometimes you know we, w- we will we will acknowledge there are societal thematics around a particular uh, industry and and we favor that we like we like to identify um, you know, uh, and a long-term societal thematic that we think is going to be a driver of industry of industry growth because that's a very backable long-term thesis. Um, so we do sometimes look at that, and we're certainly not agnostic to the industry that a business operates in because that's important. We want to we want to buy a business where the overall industry is growing um, because that provides a a tailwind um, versus a headwind. Um, we don't want to be in an industry that's stagnating or contracting. Mm-hmm that's a much tougher operating environment for management. Um, so yeah. we do look at the industry. Um, we absolutely look at the industry, but, but, but um, also very bottom-up bottom focused. Mm. And so you mentioned yeah,
0: you're a value investor, and often we talk about stocks being split into growth and value buckets. How do you approach the growth side? Because obviously, you're getting into these companies when they're small. The aim is to you know get them to grow out of small, out of micros to smalls, and then mid, and and hopefully even large if you can hold on long enough. How do you approach this kind of growth side of 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 uh, the assessment?
1: Yeah, look, I'm glad you've raised this, Andrew, because there is this. And particularly in financial media that that does tend to be this thematic where they 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 kind of um place investors into two buckets you're either a value investor or a or a growth investor or you're some sort of in between or you're and the, the bottom line is where growth assets growth businesses need to be valued and a professional investor or any investor needs to understand the difference between value and price because sometimes there can be a, a significant gap between the two so what we do is we buy growth businesses that are undervalued and we can and we have a, a, a universe of small and industrial companies that is so large and there's such eminent pricing inefficiency that we can buy a growth business at a severe discount to its true underlying value. Um, And so we're seeking to identify a business that's going to be much larger in five, six, seven years from now because our investment term and our investment horizon is that long. And we're seeking to buy that now uh, at a large discount uh, on what we think the underlying value of that business is worth. Um, and, And our asset class gives us these opportunities because it's so price inefficient um so um you know where i i i don't subscribe to this uh, dichotomy of investment you know that you're either a value or growth investor i don't think um i don't think they're antithetical qualities growth if you're investing in growth assets you should understand the underlying value of that business and you should have a view on whether that Price that you're paying in the market to access that business is a fair price. If you're overpaying, or or, or it's an, an it's an unfair price. So you know we we are growth investors that like to buy undervalued growth assets. Mm. So it's really about the patience to wait for that market,
0: uh, Mr. Market to come to you at the price that you're happy to to pay for. <laughs>
1: That's correct and and also once you do buy um and it's happened to us many times um it's not that all of a sudden mr market becomes efficient we've been invested in we've we've bought many companies where after we've bought it at a large discount the price hasn't headed north it's hit it's headed further south um so just you know we're not naive enough um or egotistical enough to think just because we buy it um, tomorrow, the market's going to get up and say, yeah, this is worth more. Um, so, sometimes the contrary happens and, and the price declines. You, you've bought at a, at a great price in 12 months or 18 months from your first purchase, it's actually sitting lower. Mm.
0: So, how do you have the fortitude to kind of hold through, you know, sometimes those brown undies moments where, you know, the market, it opens up and it, it's dropped 20%, which is not uncommon for, for some things after, uh, you know, bad 4C or bad annual report or some major competitor coming into the market.
1: You've got to have humble conviction and you have to and, – and, you know, our conviction is based on decades' worth of experience and we know that the market is inefficient up to a point. So, the market can stay inefficient for 12 months, 24 months, maybe 36 months. Over the space of five years, six years, the market is not inefficient. The market actually does revaluate an asset. And so uh, eventually either a competitor looks at the asset, industrial competitor looks at the asset and says, geez, uh, this company XYZ looks really cheap. I can buy this from, from Mr. Market, pay a 30 or 40% premium, I'm still getting a bargain. Um, or other fund managers eventually awake to the fact that there is a good business that's actually growing its profit and, geez, it's it, geez, it's cheap. So um, I guess our, our, our humble conviction is based on the fact and, and experience that that eventually the efficiency kicks in. It's just that sometimes that could take a year, two years, three years.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I like that term, humble conviction. So, let's talk about how you get that conviction and your process for analysing businesses. So, where do your ideas come from and what's your process for um, you know, identifying potential companies to add to your portfolio?
1: Yeah. So, there's roughly about 2,100 publicly listed companies on the ASX and close to 1,600 of those would be small cap to micro cap companies, so under 2 billion or under 300 million. And we invest in profitable businesses, um, and so that shrinks the universe down to about 400 to 500. And within those four to 500 companies, um, we don't invest in mining companies because nobody in our investment management team has a geological background, so we stick to industrial. So that kind of shrinks the universe even further, maybe 350 companies. And our day-to-day job is to follow the evolution of that entire universe and so we spent i would say 80% of our time researching and analyzing meeting management teams of companies we don't actually own and the reason we do that and we build these data sets we and and, and meetings we we type notes and and we do a lot of elbow um, financial research and and we go to meetings And the reason we do all that background research is if Mr. Market at any point in time opens a window for us where, geez, sometimes we like a business, but we think, geez, it's priced very fair by the market, or it's 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 actually overpriced. But what a wonderful business that would be to own! If for whatever reason the market offer us offers us an, an opportunity to buy that asset at an unfair price, we wanted to have done all the research and homework and be in a position where we can allocate capital quickly and capture that opportunity because we know sometimes those windows um, um, are transitory and and they shut quite quickly. So we don't want to we don't we don't want to forego that opportunity. So so we spend a lot of the time continuing to follow and, and businesses evolve over time. Nothing stays the same. Everything is always in a state of flux. So, you know, it requires, you know, extensive research and reading about the industry, reading about competitors, doing that every single day and there's a whole team of very dedicated professionals that, that are uh, analysing and following this, this entire um, universe. Mm. And that's and so part of our research it's a big process. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah. 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 Go on. Yeah, you you need to follow the companies, and 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 companies change. There are management changes. They go through mergers and acquisitions. Sometimes they dispose of assets we don't like, or or the price just simply changes. So, um, over time everything changes. And, and so, um, if you don't follow the trajectory and the narrative of that company, you lose sight of what could be potentially a really good opportunity. So, you need to keep abreast of a lot of things, a lot of businesses that you don't actually own. It's, it's really a full-time job. Mm. So,
0: from your um, you know, experience over time, are there any... Um, sort of green flags, where things that need to be, um, you know, ticked to be able to go into your investment portfolio. And are there any red flags that you will just not go into that zone if you find that in the research?
1: Yeah, sure. So yeah, there are. Um, so the, the business needs to be a, of, of a high quality one. So, for example, one of the one of the fundamental risks that we'd like to ascertain is there any is there any key supply. Risk Um, is a is a company dependent on any particular supply input, whether it's a relationship with Microsoft, Telstra, or or, or any key uh, vendor, um, in order to sell its products and services. So that's, for example, a red flag. If if we found that a a business had a key supply risk, where you know there were they had a commercial relationship with a with another company that um, they sourced or procured a a key input for their product or service, that would be a red flag, because that would be fundamentally uh, unacceptable level of fundamental risk for us. Um, then in terms of client concentration, that's another part of our due diligence. When we look at a business, we, we like to see a diversified um, revenue base from many clients. We don't want a client – we don't want a business where, you know, 30 or 40% of its revenue comes from one client because clients can change their views and they can go to competitors and they can, they can shift their business over time. So we don't – we like to see client diversification – we're also very debt-averse. So, most of the businesses we own either have no financial debt, they've actually got surplus cash assets, or if they do have financial debt, it's less than two times their operating profit. So, the balance sheets are very strong and sound. Um, The company's not Highly financially leveraged, which is really, really important because the problem with with debt is you usually need it um, at a time of emergency. And you know, um, a good case in point was was the recent COVID crisis. When when COVID hit last year, um, we looked at our entire portfolio and, and said, Do any of our companies actually face an existential threat? And we well, you know, we were very pleased that that you know we kept this this financial um, discipline across the balance sheet strength, um, and 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 really they had the financial wherewithal to to incur what was particularly in the early phase of the COVID crisis a, a difficult economic environment, and they they went through in flying cutlets. So that that. Um, balance sheet strength gives it financial autonomy and it gives the company the resources and the financial wherewithal um, to survive in in a challenging, unexpected crisis such as the one that that COVID hit. So, all of those things are are, are green lights. Um, In terms of red lights, um, we don't like to see you know, material-related party transactions. Uh, we want to see financial transparency. We want to make sure that the company in its disclosure statements to all investors um, provide um, sufficient key um, Operating metrics and financial metrics about how the business model functions, um, the drivers of that business, um, and and generally have high levels of financial transparency. We don't want uh, opaque disclosure policies. Um, part of our due diligence is also about assessing the the caliber of of the the, the executive team that that run the business, and sometimes. Um, during that due diligence process, we come across some individuals that in our assessment and in our professional judgment um, race red flags uh, during the course of that due diligence. And, and no matter once that happens, no matter how good the, the financial metrics stack, stack up, we will walk away. We will not enter into uh, an investment relationship with somebody that we think doesn't have an ethical or, or moral compass that's aligned to, to the shareholders' best interests. Do you have any, uh, assessment of minimum, um, margins, net margins
0: or operating margins that, that you have as a minimum hurdle?
1: Uh, we don 't um, but we like margins to be bigger. Um, we have invested in retail businesses, and generally retail businesses, as you know Andrew, have lower levels of 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 of, of net impact margins they tend to you know move anywhere between four to maybe eight percent in a, in in some retail businesses um, but we want we want usually we invest in businesses that that have um, quite decent PA margins and quite decent EBITDA margins. How do you approach, um, you know, some of the metrics like PEs,
0: uh, price to book and say um, EV revenue or revenue EV when you're, when you're assessing them?
1: Yeah, you know, we don't really look at price to book. Uh, price to book usually uh, contains um, intangible um, intangible assets. Uh, sometimes we look at net tangible assets, but but really we look at at, at operational profit. Which, um, depending on how clean the EBITDA number is, we it might be an EBITDA number. Sometimes so you have to go a little bit um, a little bit lower down the line and look at the EBIT EBIT numbers. Um, but but. You know, we use those – we use an array of different um, ratios like enterprise value, EBITDA. We wouldn't normally use PE because P is a very simplified – Ratio and, and if the company's also got some debt, that doesn't account for the, for the for the debt. It's only adding the market capitalization, whereas enterprise value does add for the debt. Or if the company's got net cash assets, the P doesn't capture that either. Um, so the enterprise value does capture the, the net financial position of the um, of the company. Um, and and you know we, we we look at a whole composite of, of ratios, um, and and also we we do discount cash flow analysis as well on the on the business how do you um,
0: approach like dilution you said companies with low debt they're great we've seen so many companies especially in the small cap space raising uh, money over the past 12 months how do you how do you approach that if you if there is a big raising do you go into maintain your position or is that something you okay this we're not even in these companies because they shouldn't need to capital raise uh, you know for survival purposes because maybe for acquisitions but you know not for survival
1: look we, we look at capital raisings critically. Um, I think a lot of boards around Australia, corporate boards, really don't understand um, capital discipline. They don't understand what the implied cost of equity actually means. They don't understand how expensive um, the cost of equity is. And so um, we need to make sure that there is a very valid reason anytime a company raises capital and issues capital. Um, you know, we have a doctrine that we like to remind management and boards, which is value thy script. And so, um, you know, if you do issue scrip, you better have a damn good reason for issuing it. Um, and, you know, like you said, in the middle of COVID, we saw uh, a lot of companies over issue capital. They were way too. Uh, conservative, um, and there's been a lot of value destruction for a lot of shareholders. Uh, Luckily, um, with only a few exceptions, most of the companies we owned did not um, undertake capital raisings. Um, There was one company that um, we had um, some very serious conversations with the board around why they did uh, a capital raising, but, but by and large, um we felt very good and, and very happy about um how our companies travelled through COVID and, and that included um very, very few capital raisings because they were well they were well capitalized from a balance sheet perspective, so they didn't really need to um undertake that. But but yeah, I coming back to your point, I think um we, we assess capital raisings critically.
0: Yep. with uh, assessing management, how do you assess them in terms of their insider ownership, you know their annual pay, and say the number of options and things that they might have have on board
1: yeah we, we like to we, generally we like companies' uh, management to have significant um, equity in the business um, we we're, we are a firm believer that alignment is a very good thing and and generally where we 've done particularly well in our investments, um, there is usually a correlation between the executive management team having um, a material stake in the equity and, and the actual investment outcome. Now, unfortunately, you can't always get the executive team to to have a material stake, um, but but we certainly prefer it. Um, in terms of, of assessing the the competence, we we look and, and the the rem package. We look at we 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 particularly look at the STIs and the LTIs and and what are the um, key performance indicators tied to the vesting of those LTIs. Um, So, we want to make sure that the board has put in place a LTI structure that is actually aligned to shareholders' best interests. And sometimes we have pretty... Um, Confrontation or conversations with the board around how they've set the LTIs, which sometimes, again, coming back to you know an observation that we have around um, capital management expertise around boards, we just think that generally a lot of boards don't really understand capital markets and capital discipline, and and so they establish LTIs that are really not. Proper LTIs, and that can create executive and management behaviour that's actually not truly aligned to optimal investment outcomes for shareholders.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. So, can you give us an example of like what's a uh, good or bad, you know, short and long term incentives for for execs?
1: Yeah. So, a, a bad one, for example, would be um, and one that we're always extremely critical would be one where they tie the um. LTI of the, um, say, the CEO, for example, to um, the relative performance of the price versus the, say, the All Lords Index. Um, Now, um, that to us doesn't make any sense um, because the CEO of a company is not being paid to outperform an index. He's not a fund manager or her, he or she's not a fund manager. Um, and And ultimately, their performance should be based on financial metrics that actually ultimately drive the business. So, profit, earnings, free cash flow, earnings per share. Right, Um, you know, just because they've outperformed the index in one year doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that there is an achievable performance metric to the CEO's performance. And so, you know, we're extremely critical of that because they're not fund managers. Um, They should be driving the earnings of the business um, over the long term upwards. So, so anything that has a sort of relative performance on on share price, um, we're usually very critical um, of. And, and so that would be one that we would we would issue. Sometimes, for example, there is a there's also LTIs that are that are just based on the nominal value of profits. So they might have if you increase your NPAT by, you know, twenty five percent on average over the next three or four years um, per annum, uh, then you'll have vesting rights on on the LTI. Now, putting a nominal NPAT um, then um, uh, means that the uh, management team can undertake a whole series of MA, which might be actually dilutionary to investors in order to meet that MPAT. So, you shouldn't put a, a nominal MPAT number. You should, be using either a, uh, you should use, always be using a profit on a per unit basis um, to defend uh, shareholders against um, inappropriate merger and acquisitions that management might take to just meet the LTI
0: mm yeah that makes sense. so it's really should be focused internal to to the company growing its um appropriately for shareholders as well yeah
1: it's it's really about it's a really really about delivering financial performance on a per unit basis which in in shareholder terms is per share basis mm. and and that should be the the, the key the key hard. Black and white metric and and that should be not just for one year it should be over the over the course of of the LTI which is usually three to five years um and and it shouldn't be based on on market market directional or, or relative performance we don't you know it, just because the share price has gone up doesn't mean the company's actually a- added any value um you know the 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 CEO might be uh, in the middle of a bull market but they haven't actually um, performed well and the company has actually not achieved any earning, earnings growth it and and so there's no there's no attribution. There's no direct attribution between performance and, and generating shareholder wealth. It's just, you know, it's just they happen to be lucky with with the market at the time. Mm-hmm. And so and, and conversely, you could have a CEO that's actually performed really, really well and happens to be in a in a bear market and, and the share price has actually declined. That that's that's not a that's not an attribution that's related to 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 the CEO's performance. So it has to be linked. Um, there has to be a, a direct nexus and, and so those LTIs make sense. And the former ones don't.
0: Mm. So many microcaps are founder-led. How do you approach founder-led versus professional management teams? And is there a point where you know sometimes the founder, who is really an industry expert, doesn't necessarily have the skills to be able to take it to the next level when the company does grow? Um, it's you know revenue and, and needs a bit more professional management.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Andrew. I think that's a new. The, the answer to that is nuance. We don't have a black and white rule that says, you know, if you're a founder-led. CEO. At some point, you have to walk off your office. It doesn't make any sense to us. The reality is, in and I can experience it myself in my own job. Is if you business, if the business grows, the management skill set, whoever is in whoever's in that post needs to grow with a business at a skill level. And and some CEOs that are founder led grow with with the business and others stay behind and those laggers I think ultimately it's in the best interest that they be removed but those then there are other CEOs, founders that actually grow exponentially at at a personal skill level and and integral to the success of the business and and there's no reason why uh, those type of founder-led CEOs should ever be removed. So, so we don't have a, a black and white rule. We have a nuance. And we've seen cases, we've seen both sets of cases. We've seen CEOs that, you know, were great at, uh, for the company um, in the first years and, and as the business expanded, um, they, they, they didn't grow at a personal level um, uh, with the company and, and were the wrong people to lead the company going forward. And we've seen other CEOs that have been there for 20 years and, and they're fantastic. Um so it really depends on the capability and the the personal growth dynamics of the individual. Hmm.
0: Okay so let's let's move on to portfolio and position management so you've you've met with management you've done your due diligence and a company passes your screen how do you then enter the position and how much capital do you allocate and what's your deployment strategy
1: Yep. So, we'll enter the position any way we can. <laughs> um, we'll try and get, get access to the capital any way we can, whether it's through brokers selling us large lines of, of equity, lines, large lines of stock, or if we have to do it in the open market and it takes us three weeks or sometimes three months to, to build a position, we'll do that. Um, that's that's how we enter it. Any way we can is, is the approach we, we take. Um, in terms of the actual percentage that we allocate, um, it depends on the risk-reward relationship that we observe in the specific company. And let let me just sort of dig into that a little bit further. Ultimately, if you really distill um, what the investment process seeks to do at at the molecular level, at the the, the real central central, level, of, of, of the exercise at the, at the real center of the exercise what you're trying to do is you're trying to capture upside reward um, with as little risk as possible now in order to capture upside reward you need to expose yourself to some risk and every investment entails um, varying degrees of risk what we seek to do is to maximize the relationship between the two the 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 upside versus the, the, the risk we're exposing ourselves to, which means that uh, in a nutshell, we can invest in businesses that don't necessarily, we might invest more in a business that doesn't necessarily have the highest upside available, but it's got the lowest, it's got the highest upside per unit of risk. So that's the approach we take. We look at both upside and the fundamentals risks that we're exposing ourselves and our investors in order to try and capture that investment. So it's the it's the um, it's the relationship of of upside per unit of risk that we're looking at, and and so that's how we determine whether we allocate. You know. Three percent of the fund's assets, or sometimes twelve percent, fifteen percent of the fund's assets, to a specific company. And so, the greater the conviction we have on a company w- with regards to capturing that upside and the risk exposure, um, if we feel the risk exposure is 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 quite low, um, that means we will um, will allocate a, a very large, significant part of the portfolio. If we feel, for example, that there is some upside with a higher level of risk than other investments relative to other investments, we will make a smaller um, portfolio allocation to that investment.
0: And then as those risks come down, would you then deploy more capital into that as the thesis plays
1: out? Sometimes those risks don't come down. So, so those risks are always prevalent and they can crystallise or materialise at any time. So, if, uh, and, and let me... Because I'm sounding extremely theoretical. Let let me say you let's say you buy Qantas shares, right? So Qantas has a number of fundamental risks associated. It's got um, fuel prices. It's got labour prices. It's got um, tourism um, exposure. Uh, There's a whole set of fundamental risks associated. Um, uh, Tourism inflow exposure. There's a whole set of, of risks. Those risks don 't vary don 't necessarily vary for for a time they they do expose so so they they sometimes crystallize or materialize and sometimes they don 't um, So, sometimes it's not that risk evolves. Um, uh, Sometimes the risk always stays there and what happens is the company uh, might have captured some of that upside and you have to reduce your exposure because the risk relationship is still the same and you've already captured some of that upside. So, in those scenarios, we would reduce um, our investment. Um, uh, Sometimes risks can dissipate. I, For example, if we invest in a company that has... You know, one product uh, vertical um, and and exposed to one specific industry, um, but then it it evolves beyond that that one product vertical into two product verticals and and now has multi-layer industry. Then there's been a different then then that that investment or that company has been de-risked somewhat because it's now got a, a different specific level of risk. So um, it's not not a simple answer, but but. But that's how we allocate capital and that's how we think about, um, you know, reward and, and, and portfolio positions.
0: Mm. So, it's really based on your due diligence, not just on price, move, price movements then, isn't it? You've got to have those uh, clear factors and how they're playing out in your mind to watch them as they evolve and crystallize or materialize.
1: Correct. And sometimes price movements, as, as you rightly point out, Andrew, sometimes price movements is the only thing that's changed. And, and you know, sometimes that means that we will sell out of a business because um, part of the upside is now um, dissipated and the risk is still there. So, so you know, um, sometimes we make a sell decision. It doesn't happen happen often but we do sometimes sell out of an investment because we felt that that the price um, you know the market price is well in excess of the intrinsic value and the intrinsic value always factors in the the fundamental risks right so so sometimes we do have to make those decisions just based only on price
0: mm. so what's your approach to selling then and, or trimming or exiting a position what what uh, things do you have what, what- yeah, what are the targets or, or ideas you have as to when you will sh- uh, shrink down the position?
1: Yeah, so generally, we, we've got usually three different scenarios by which we, we make a, a decision to sell. The first one, which is the, the, the least palatable, is you know, we have a particular investment thesis on a company. And for a protracted period of time, um, either through a lack of execution or poor execution by the management team or a risk factor that crystallizes, completely undermines the original investment fees of the premise that we had for that business. Usually, in those scenarios, we will decide to sell. And usually, typically, under those scenarios, we're looking at a significant loss of principal. It's just the nature of the beast. So, that's one scenario. Second scenario is where, you know, coming back to what I said earlier on around price and, and risk, if if we feel that you know a particular asset that we're holding um, has been materially revalued from a from a market price perspective with respect to the intrinsic um, value um, and no longer holds a compelling risk reward relationship um, we will sell or if we if the relation risk reward relationship is still attractive but 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 not as compelling as before, we might re- decide to reduce um, the portfolio weighting. And and then the third exit, third third exit scenario is really through through M and A, and probably through the last two years, M and A has become almost the certainly the you know used to account for about forty percent of our exit, but we've seen a lot of merger and acquisition activity in our funds in the last twenty four months. It's probably now accounting for about seventy to eighty percent of our exits. Um, so they're just. Um, you know, other buyers, either either private equity backed or industrial buyers, coming in and and paying us large premiums for companies that we own, and so that's been the other kind of a force majeure exit. Hmm.
0: Okay, that makes sense. You yeah. looking at some of your funds, so the value fund. Um, you know, forty five percent of the fund is in companies that are now more than say three hundred million. If a company shoots the lights out, do you how do you rebalance or? Do you trim that back a bit? Is there a percentage so, so, where you wouldn't? So we don't sell
1: a company because it ceases to be a micro cap or or a small company that ceases to be a small cap because its market value has risen. That that's not a reason for us to sell. Um, we do sometimes have cases where you know a company um, a company's um, upside um, or potential reward has been you know um, materially decreased because because we felt we felt that it's you know the share price has risen by a hundred or. Three hundred percent, and we don't feel the the upside uh, on a per unit of risk basis is is that isn't, is that attractive. We will trim down and sometimes and, t- and sometimes exit. But the the market capitalization threshold for us in itself is not a it's not a trigger or a, or a point uh, which we analyse in order to make a, a either a, a, a sell down decision or an exit. Mm.
0: What have been your best investments and your worst investments, and, and why do you think th- those evolved?
1: yeah look best investments look it's 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 hard cuz we've been invested in, in in so many companies over so long that we've we've had certainly a number of investments where we've probably made over a 1000% those now though that sounds you know like an amazing return but i i can assure you that 1000% return didn't come through a 12-month event, you know it's probably we held that investment for five to six years. A company, for example, that we invested in very early on was a was actually a medical technology company called ProMedicus, um, which when we bought that company um, back in 2010, uh, it was certainly not a household name and nobody had ever heard of it. It was a 60 million dollar market value company with uh, no debt and. And 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 two very interesting products, one of which we really, really liked, which is the Visage Technology to um um uh, imaging Diagnostic imaging business um, that has a, a technology architecture that provides a provides um, doctors with a superior um, uh, a superior experience in terms of of speed to to access the imagery and it had a number of of fundamental um, advantages over the competitive um, product offering and we backed that business very early on and went on to become a a multi-billion-dollar company, and I think we we ended up making over a thousand percent. And um, and curiously, I think when we saw it, it was uh, I think it was already like at a over a billion. But but it's now I think um, uh, gone multiples of that. Um, we invested in M2 Telecommunications when it was a, a again a microcap company. Nobody had heard of it, and, and M2 Telecommunications went on to become a, a multi-billion-dollar company, merged with with Enfocus, and and went on to become a really successful business. Invested in a little company called Big Air Limited, um, which we bought uh, when it was a tiny business, and and eventually that business uh, – we bought it, I think, when it had a $10 million market value. Eventually, that business went on to 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 go on to become, you know, 20-fold our initial uh, investment. So, those are some of our um, – um, successful investments. And we've certainly had some very successful exits over the last 24 months on businesses that, you know, we've probably made 400 or to 500%, a company like GBST and um, you know, a whole, whole set of exits that we've done. Um, in terms of, of bad investments, um, we've certainly also had our fair share. Um, we tend to, to have a, a success rate of about 85 to 90%. So, it means that, you know, we generally make investments, prof- profitable investments and in 85 to 90% of the time. But we do, and we will continue to, to make investments in which we incur losses. Um, some of those companies where we've made losses was we invested in a company called Rubik Financial Software. Um, they went on to... Um, Go on and make various acquisitions, which were badly integrated um, and poorly executed, and we ended up selling um, at a significant loss of principal. Um, we went on to we've we've made yeah we've we've made you know that that was a bad investment. We've we've made other other bad investments. We invested in the company um, in the dental um, in the dental healthcare space, which we did. Badly on as well, and um, it was you know it was it was it was quite a quite a bad investment for us from a from a percentage loss of principle, um, and so that will happen from time to time, and, and I'm sure you know as I look to the future, we'll continue to make investments where we lose money. Um, probably our biggest. Um, um, mistakes, however, are not mistakes of of, of attribution. They're mistakes of emission. It's kind of investments we didn't make where we've actually lost the most by way of of, of opportunity cost. But but obviously the conventional accounting doesn't pick up opportunity cost. Um, but those are probably the, the the toughest ones to to swallow. Things that we research uh, and for one reason or another didn't commit any capital, and and those businesses consequently have gone up to you know make. 500 percent those those mistakes are a lot more costly than than mistakes of attribution, yeah, the ones that got away <laughs> always hurt hurt more yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. all right, and so you run a number of funds through your AXX listed uh, public company micro asset management. Can you tell us a bit about the funds and the clients who you have uh, invested in those funds?
1: yeah, sure so so we ran four different st- strategies um that the oldest one is our in our deep value. Fund that fund uh, has been running for for twelve years. Um, it's delivered an annual compound return of of over nineteen percent. I think if you've invested uh, one hundred thousand uh, dollars in that fund when it started, it would be worth about eight hundred thousand dollars today. Um, so that's our biggest fund um, today. It still probably accounts for about. 40 to 45% of our funds under management. Um, We then launched, uh, as as that fund got older, what we noticed is a lot of the microcap companies um, became small caps and some of them even became mid caps. So the fund was no longer a a microcap fund. So we had to actually drop the name microcap because it was a misnomer. So uh, what we thought is that we actually didn't, a few years into that, we thought we'd no longer have a a fund that's actually a pure microcap. And so we launched a pure microcap which is kind of deep value version 2.0 um which only invests in microcaps and that has um you know a much more sort of heritage linked um nexus to to our our microcap um heritage and and so that differences between pure and deep is as pure is is today i think 98 percent invested in microcaps whereas in in deep value you're getting about a 50 percent exposure um, <clears throat> that has a that Pure's got about, I think, about a three and a half year track record. Um, and there's been a lot of merger and acquisition activity recently in that fund, which is why um, I think it's done over a hundred percent in the in the last twelve months, which and, and we still think we own a a lot of um undervalued uh, companies that look vulnerable to to MA. Um, then we've got a, a, an income fund, a, a microcap income fund, which is quite a unique strategy. It's it's got over thirty companies, a very diversified, industrially diversified range of companies. We pay it pays cash distributions um, every month. And those cash distributions are sourced from the dividend income stream that these pool of, of over 30 companies um, um, generate, and and we're able to fund that cash distribution from from that that dividend income, and also provide um, franking credits. And and you know, income funds traditionally, equity income funds don't do very well from a capital growth perspective. They tend to do good. They tend to do well from a from an income. Perspective, but but from a capital perspective, they tend to do quite poorly and and not deliver any capital growth. Um, that fund has actually achieved its two um, objectives, which is to provide regular cash income, and it's it's got a a, a gross. Historical gross distribution yield of, of close to six percent, um, but it's actually delivered capital growth on top of that. So if you invested back in 2012, which is when we launched that fund, you would have had close to 90 cents back of 90 cents of your original dollar back in cash and, and franking credits. And today, on top of that, those units are worth over a dollar fifty. So it has actually generated capital growth as well as as, as income. Um, and lastly we 've got a, a a global fund, which is essentially the same strategy um, as deep but we 're applying it to um, developed economies and, in, and we invest in industrial businesses that we have a particular expertise around uh, the business model and 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 the product services verticals that they um, that they sell.
0: Yep. and and then you've got a new fund that's opening uh, middle of this year which sounds exciting can you tell us a bit about that one
1: yeah so we've, we've recently expanded our investment management team we've, we've we've brought on new people um to to give us depth and greater research capability and and part of the idea behind that expansion is is to run a strategy that we've always felt um was a missing gap in terms of 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 where our investors want to invest in and and that's um, private companies, and 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 so we're going to launch a fund that's uh, going to invest in private companies, in pre-IPO companies, and help them transition and 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 take them through the journey of being in the IPO and beyond. So it's going to be the the private to IPO and beyond fund, um, and and we think it's it's a natural. Um, it's a natural uh, investment universe for us, and there's tremendous research synergies between us and the people that are going to be running the the strategy of, of of the private to to IPO and beyond fund. Um, and the idea is to invest in in companies when they're private, help them through that growth phase and see them transition into the ASX and publicly listed markets and 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 be long-term partners with them on that on that journey and help them um, uh, meet their objectives um so it is a very exciting uh, fund and one that we've been wanting to do for a long time but 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 we'd required the right people we needed to recruit the right people in order to to manage that and and I think we've been able to do that and and recruit and expand the, the investment management team
0: so it's like uh, if your microcaps have been investing in the the teenagers or the late teenagers uh of companies, this is kind of going for the nappies and the um the preschoolers before they turn into those uh high flying teenagers
1: <laughs> they'll be they'll be at an earlier stage, but they're, they're, we're not going right to the babies um so so we will target companies that have at least ten million dollars in revenue so they're not they're not um, you know they 're not in concept stage they 've already got some very significant runs on the board in terms of of revenue numbers. Um, we expect some of those businesses will already be profitable and just requiring um, growth capital and, and also um, expertise around um, you know evolving from from a smaller company to a much bigger company um, and that that you know they can they can do with assistance in that in that journey and so they'll they 'll certainly be younger. Um, absolutely but they won't be you know in the embryonic stages and and they won't be at, at the baby level they they're, they're already we have already seen a, a a very strong um demand for their product and services offering um so we're not going they're not going to the venture capital phase it's 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 more mature than that
0: Yep. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for spending time uh, talking to us. I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to to this again just to extract some of those nuggets that you dropped, uh, especially with all the abbreviations as well. How can listeners get in contact with you and learn more about you and your funds?
1: Andrew, they can come to our website at uh, microequities.com.au or they can call us um, on the number listed on that website and speak to some of our excellent and lovely relationship managers. So, um, yeah, that's the easiest way.
0: Yep, I'll put those uh, in the show notes for sure. And I think it's also good that with each of your funds, you do have that monthly uh, you know, report that you put out as the investment officer so people can get a bit of an idea of what's inside the fund as well without disclosing too much <laughs> of the secret sauce.
1: Yeah, they, they'll get a very good insight into into the type of companies and the profile of companies we invest in, as well as as, as really getting the taste of our investment doctrine and, and, and our value proposition.
0: Yep, fantastic. Thank you very much, Carlos. Have a great day.
1: You too, Andrew. Take
0: care. Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you learned something new, please share the episode with your family and friends. I'd love to get your feedback. So send questions, comments, and recommendations to me at, at com. See you in the next episode.